This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. Man, I love that intro. It's so cool. It was like long series and we got to use it for a long time, you know. Uh, so uh, anyhow, and we will be continuing that series this morning, but good morning. Good to see you. I hope all is well in your world. Uh, before we get started this morning, a couple things we want to share with you. One, uh, some of you may be aware. I know I've gotten lots of messages back and forth. Others of you not so aware. Uh, but we have set a date for when we're going down to uh, Cape Coral. Uh, actually, we're going to leave next Sunday after service. We have This is Vine Life. That's a, an opportunity for those who are new to Vine Life to get to know uh, more about us. And then after that, we have that luncheon and, and uh, sharing time. Uh, we're going to pack up the truck uh, in the afternoon and head out. So we've got an RV. We've got a 14-foot box truck and we're going to stuff those things. Uh, and we've got a small team. Uh, we still have maybe room for a couple more people. And so if you are interested, uh, let me know. Uh, you know, uh, Communicate with me, if you will, private message. And uh, we'll try to uh, see if, if that, we can make some more room in, in all of this. But uh, really looking forward to going down and connecting with uh, the Cape Coral Vineyard. A lot of uh, great work happening there. One of the most exciting things, last Sunday, the first Sunday uh, meeting afterwards, they were uh, sharing the gospel with people, and a young man by the name of Ian got saved uh, in the wake of the... Yeah, yeah, that's something to applaud. Yes, absolutely. So very excited, but uh, of course there's been a lot of devastation, and so uh, looking forward to getting down there and helping out. Uh, have been in pretty constant communication with uh, Jamie Stilson uh, and Kim Stilson, uh, the pastors there. Um, but there is so much that is uh, still yet to be done. It's going to be a long recovery, and so uh, looking forward to building bridges with them and helping them. So, um, <clears throat> so if you would like to bring uh, any items uh, next week, we've got, you may have noticed on the way in, besides the really cool fall decor, uh, on the other corner you may have noticed gas cans. Uh, if you'd like to bring some gas cans and, and give us some money to fill those gas cans, empty gas cans are not that particularly helpful, um, but, um, but bring them empty because we don't want to have gas fumes, obviously, uh, just you know, lingering. Uh, we're going to fill those up just before we get down there uh, on the way down. Uh, the other thing that's uh, happening in that, uh, we're needing canned goods, we are needing paper goods, of course, uh, uh, water and stuff like that is really more for the teams who are doing outreach. Right now, the Cape Coral Vineyard is feeding people every day, uh, and so part of the need is for people to go down there and be involved in feeding. Uh, so that's something in future trips that maybe you could get involved in, uh, especially if you have a camper or something and could be somewhat self-sustaining. Uh, they'll feed you while you're feeding other people, um, but they're feeding there every day. Uh, they're on Pine Island doing some major construction uh, for some homes there, trying to get people back in their homes uh, are the two biggest ways that they are reaching out right now. Of course, Convoy of Hope is there, Samaritan's Purse, and others uh, that you could volunteer with as well. But I'd like to encourage you to be a part of helping out uh, our sister church there at Cape Coral Vineyard. So, uh, we'll be leaving next week, and uh, if you would like to bring things to help out with that. Oh, the other thing that I was told, tarps. Tarps are a big plus. They are temporary roofs. They are patches on roofs, things like that. Uh, and then uh, uh, four by eight sheets of OSB or plywood uh, are in very short supply. As you can imagine, everybody wants them. They're like gold. Um, so uh, uh, if you have access to those things, let me know. We'd love to take some down there with the box truck. We can take quite a bit. All right. So next week. This week, I have some cool things to share with you really quickly here. One, 
cross wall. If you are not familiar with our cross wall, all those crosses are representative of different families within our church, the largest cross being the whole church family, the smaller crosses, all of us trying to have cruciform, that cross-shaped lives, living the Jesus life. And each cross is unique as the person or families that brought those, uh, very symbolic in all these crosses. They're not just cool, but uh, they are specifically uh, telling the story of the persons who brought them. And this week, you know, one of the things I'm always telling people, even if you've been here for a while and you haven't brought us a cross because you've been looking and you've been looking, haven't found quite the right cross, and you're thinking, well, now it seems silly. I've been here a while. And so, uh, no, it's never too late to bring your cross. We love when you bring your cross. And so the Thompson family, life was up here on stage earlier. Audra's uh, running uh, the uh, slides today. And so life and Audra and Indy and Story and Jovi, uh, this is their cross. So uh, they're back there at the booth. Wave, you guys, if you will. All right, very cool. Make sure to tell them how glad you are that they brought that. And then speaking of belonging, I want to take a minute and introduce to you our newest team member and family. Uh, Joseph, if you can come on up, your family, come on up. This is Joseph, his wife Taylor, and their daughter Lola, who's eight months old. We are so excited to have you guys join our team. Yay! Let's just take a moment, if you would, extend your hand in prayer toward them. Let's pray over them right now. And Father God, we just want to thank you for this addition to our church family here. We thank you that you not only brought us a staff member, but that you brought us a family who just is so excited to be here, loves what you're doing here. And so, Father, we pray that over them, that not only would they sense your blessing as they are ministering, but I pray, Lord, that they would feel knit together with our church family, that they would feel from the get-go a sense of belonging, a sense of being enfolded into the body. And so watch over them, fill them with your grace and your mercy. And Lord, I pray just many, many blessings on them as a family. In Jesus' name, amen. See, she's amen. She's saying it too. Thank you, guys. All right, just a great morning, you know, and I'm, you know, and I'm so excited because like Texas put the major whoop on Oklahoma. Oh, I'm not supposed to say that out loud, am I? Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, I tell you, it was a banner day for the orange. I'm telling you, okay. <clears throat> Back to the message. <laughs> Just just slipped out there. Anyhow, welcome back to another edition of the Transformation Series, our looking at the letter to the church in Rome. Now, throughout this series, we have been talking about the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. We began there in those first four chapters of looking at what it was about the old creation and how that revealed the heart, the character, the nature of God, that He is a good God. And yet we also see the effects of the fall, and we see that gap between the goodness of creation and what is happening in humanity and humankind, the fallenness, the need for redemption. And so even as we look at the things in creation, there are things about the creation that are crying out for redemption. When we look at things like hurricanes and tsunamis that bring ma massive destruction, when we look at you know, earthquakes and, and storms of all kinds, when we look at some of the fallen things in nature and we look at those things and we go, what is that about the creation that so is in crying out uh, that the, the whole earth is groaning as in the pains of childbirth, longing for redemption? And that's what actually chapter 8 is all about, is that the earth is groaning, the earth is waiting in expectation for the sons of God. That is for you and I as new creatures in Christ to be revealed for that day in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That all of creation is longing for that, even as you and I, and even sometimes as these earthly bodies are crying out to be completely redeemed, to be uh, fully uh, you know, healed and all of that. And yet, here's the thing, is that the kingdom of God is not just something that is a far off, but it is present now. The new creation is not something that's just 
the coming, but it is also something that is present now as you and I, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, are transformed and begin to live a kingdom life now. We begin to live an eternal life right here and now. When you and I receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we receive the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, the transformation process begins and you and I are already new creations and we can express that and live that out. And that's what chapters 9 through 12 are focused in on, is that transformative process. And then going from chapter 13 on, we're primarily bringing our humanity into our new role as the priest of God, sharing in that new creation and how that is expressed outwardly. Today we are in chapter 14. Last week, we, in chapter 13, the subject matter, you know, uh, I said then could be very controversial and it was tough to preach about. You were very receptive. I was very excited about that. Heard lots of great uh, things about that chapter. Uh, but, you know, here's the thing. Um, <clears throat> here in chapter 14, just like last week, is a tough subject matter. And this subject matter can be controversial, this time not because of outside influences on the church, but because of the very internal dynamics, the social dynamics inside the church over what is essentially disputable matters. Now, I will be honest, in 30-plus years of church ministry, I have never, never, never Never, 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 ever heard of a church that split actually over doctrinal issues. Never heard of it. Never seen it. I've heard it accused, but upon investigation, that's not actually what happened. Upon investigation, what actually happened is people went to fighting over disputable matters and ripped each other to shreds. And can I just tell you that within the Scripture, over and over again, the division in the church was never about the real doctrinal issues. It always comes down to disputable matters. And that's why this chapter is so, so important for us to keep our head around. May the Lord have mercy on us as we attempt to understand this and then live it out as a church. Now, keep in mind that the, since the end of chapter 12, the primary context has been how do they, the, those Roman Christians, as followers of my, Messiah, maintain love as their modus operandi for all of their actions? It is easy to demand love of others, but it is truly rare to be a people who outdo one another in the actual application. With those things said, let's take a look at chapter 14 this morning. If you would, open your Bible or your app. Scroll down to Romans chapter 14, verse 1. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Please follow along in whatever translation you prefer. That one is my favorite this morning because you're reading it. If you're using a phone or tablet, please set that to silent. Romans 14, 1, we read these words. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let the one who eats despise let, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And, net, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another. 
while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end... Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love, by what, by, but by what you eat. Do not destroy the one from whom Christ died, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual Upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. That faith that you have, keep between yourself and God, and blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant to you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. As for the one whose faith, who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. You know, over the years, you have heard me address this topic of the gospel of sin management. The gospel of sin management is a false gospel that masquerades as the gospel. It is this gospel in which we feel the necessity to manage our own appearances on the outside uh, so that we appear like we're doing those things, but not actually doing them. It's a constant problem, especially in Bible Belt cultures. I think it's particularly difficult because there's an expectation to behave certain ways. And so sometimes we we know things deep within our heart, and we are okay with that, but we're afraid of looking a particular way. Uh, and so there is this, this uh, expectation of behavior that is different than what we are living internally. And so we manage, if you will, the optics of how it looks to people. 
The other side of the gospel of sin management is sometimes people, because they cannot control themselves, uh, have developed uh, walls around things. In fact, it's a common practice going back to the Pharisees uh, uh, and talked about in things uh, in some of the early writing uh, uh, for the, the Jews to talk about building a fence around the law in hopes that you would not violate the law. And so putting things out there to keep you from ever getting to that point. As long as I don't violate this, I can't violate that, is that the thought process. And so to build a fence around the law in the hopes that you wouldn't break the law. And that has crept its way into the church, but the end result is, is that oftentimes in the gospel of sin management, not only are we managing our own optics, the way it looks and the way that we are behaving, but then feeling the need to look at how other people are managing their lives and to try to tell them how to manage their lives. Doesn't go over very well either way. As I said before, in 30 plus years of ministry, I have never seen a church split over actual gospel issues, but almost, in, without exception in my experience, it has always been over disputable matters. As I read this text, one of the things that I have encountered, and increasingly so over the years, was when people had an opinion that they would ask of others to stop doing something, a practice, a celebration, a form of worship, eating, drinking, etc. But it was always positioned, always has been positioned from this is what mature Christians do, and in a sense, scolding the other person for their freedom. And yet, even as this passage has been multi, many times weaponized in that discussion, I have yet never heard anyone who was weaponizing this passage say to the other person, well, if you don't stop doing that, I'm going to lose my faith in the Messiah and return to worshiping false gods. Never heard that argument made. That would be actually an application of the text. If you, if you said, you know, if you do those things, you know, I'm just going to go back to my old manner of life and worshiping false gods and everything because I, this is really causing me to stumble that way. I have not yet heard that argument, not once. And yet, they were quick to use this passage to tell other people they have to stop doing whatever they're doing because it offended them, and they were going to stumble. It is incongruent to say, I'm going to stumble, and then to also say, I'm the stronger person. Hello? Hello? In fact, here's the thing is, what doesn't make sense is that in almost every, it, it, no, I have to say without exception, everyone who said those things claimed to be wiser and more mature and insisted that the person who felt free was being immature. And if they continued the behavior, it would somehow lead them into sin or maybe become demon-possessed or something. I feel it necessary to point out in the text that those who abstained were passing judgment on, on others and those who were partaking were passing judgment on others. And in the text, what Paul essentially says is that judging others is general evidence of immature faith with growing head knowledge. 
In other words, you've learned some things from over here in the Scriptures that aren't direct application, but then you lack the maturity to make a proper application to self, and you go about making application to everyone else about these things that you've discovered or you think are helpful to you as you are growing in the faith. Can I say along the way, in my own walk with Christ, that there have been times when I have set guardrails about my life because I recognized that I was weak in a particular area or I didn't un have understanding there and I felt uncomfortable with those things. And so I set guardrails there for my own personal sake. But what I recognize also is that early on in Christ, whenever I discovered something that was good for me, I thought everybody else needed it also. Hello? You know, like, you know, I, I can just tell you, I, I, I'm by nature a networker, and I love to share everything that's good in my life, you know? Uh, so when I came to Christ, like, I'm not a great evangelist, but I'll tell you what, like, I was so jazzed about what God was doing in my life, I just couldn't wait to tell everybody. I thought it was the best thing for everybody, you know? And I made sure all my friends knew about it till most of them you know, had nothing to do with me. Uh, and a few of them, you know, came to Christ. It was, you know, uh, the reality is, is whenever I find something I like, I like to share about it. I, whether it's furniture or if it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, computer products or whatever else. I'm restraining myself right now even. Uh, you know, I will talk about those things because I, I just, I want everybody to know how good those things are for me and how much I like them and I want to share. But it is equally important that people be also able to share the things that are done well by them, that has strengthened them or encouraged them or made their life easier. But recognizing that when it comes to things that aren't spelled out in the Scripture, that there should be freedom. In this particular context, remember that the church there is a hearty combination of both Jewish and Greek Christians. Remember, uh, I said early on, the identity of a Greek Christian is someone who was a pagan, who was a Gentile, Gentile meaning those without God. They were Gentiles, and now they are followers of Christ. Now they are, are followers of the Messiah. They have God in their lives. And so he's no longer identifying them as Gentiles. He's calling them Greek Christians, referring to the cultural identity of that all things Greek and all things Jewish and the, the kind of the tension between those two worlds, but identifying them in a broader uh, identity. And so we have Jewish Christians and we have Greek Christians worshiping together, and it's created a number of social dynamics there in those first few chapters. We, we, we're looking at that expressly. Uh, on the one hand, the Jewish Christians are trying to tell the Greek Christians, well, you should do it like we do because we have been walking with Yahweh for a really long time. We should be your instructors. We should be your teachers. And there's a lot of great truth to that, Paul says, but the thing is, is he points out to them, and yet you too are sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the context for that there in chapter 3. When he says that, he's not just like making an excuse for bad behavior, which is the way it's often used in the church in modern day. He was actually addressing the Jewish Christians, and he was saying to them, Listen, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. While you know these things and you have some certain maturity and exposure and things like that, do not think of yourself as being better than these Greek Christians. And then he was appealing to the Greek Christians. It's true, your manner of life was different and you're coming into this and you're learning all of these things. There's a huge cultural shift going on in your life and he's calling them to be disciple, calling them to listen to some of the things that these Jewish Christians are teaching them, to learn the ways, but at the same time, he's making it clear that much of the Jewish history and, and so is not necessary for the Greek Christians, that they simply need Jesus as their Messiah and then to walk out a life of 
uh, where the mind has been renewed so that they can do his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Nonetheless, we've got Jewish Christians in the church who are still very much walking out all of the cultural aspects of being Jews, and so they don't eat certain foods because they're not kosher. Things like pork or shellfish. They also felt the need to keep all the feasts of the Hebrew calendar. Some of the Greek, that is the non-Jewish Christians, joined them in that practice, and a few of those who began to keep the calendars and dietary restrictions came to a place where they began to impose those practices on everyone in the church, suggesting that everybody needed to do that because even though it wasn't demanded, it was probably better for them, i.e. a matter of opinion. Paul's critique early on in Romans and again now in the letter was that they were putting their trust in their identity as Jews rather than actually putting their trust in Messiah. And that it is not uncommon in both Jewish and Christian circles to view being different from the world as the highest value. Ever heard that preached? You know, the Pharisees, the name Pharisee, do you know what that means? Separated. We have separated ourselves so that we stand out and look different from the world. That's what the name Pharisee means. It's good to live a holy and distinct life. It is not good to put our trust in our identity as Jews or Christian or Messiah rather than putting our hope and trust in Messiah to save us. If we put our trust in those things, in those outward appeals, if we put our trust in those things that make us look a certain way, if we then like maybe see someone else living differently than that, I, I, I heard it like right after I moved here, and I, I never will forget it, it just really stood out to me that somebody was talking about one of our coaches from the local high school here and the persons that were talking were sitting there and they were judging the man and said, well, I thought coach so-and-so was a Christian. The other one said, well, he is a Christian. I, I, he prays with the team. And he goes, no, he's not. I saw him at Applebee's drinking a beer. Oh, well, Lord have mercy. That cultural stuff being the judgment of whether or not somebody is in Christ is very much that spirit of putting your trust in outward things rather than the confidence in Messiah to save. Another group were some of the Greek Christians who were particularly sensitive because of their former manner of life. They were making a break from paganism and false worship, and so they were particularly concerned about the festivities of Roman and Hellenistic culture and their relationship to pagan ritual. They were worried. They knew that some of the meat had been sacrificed. That also was a problem in Corinth, where they knew that some of the meat had been sacrificed to gods, that many times that the meat in the market had been strangled to death in a ceremony of worship of a false god, and Paul's instruction to them was, you know, listen, when you go into the market and you buy those meats, don't ask questions. Don't go up and say, hey, was that meat strangled to a foreign god in the, you know, for the sake of worship? He says, just buy it. And then without raising issues of conscience, you go and you eat it in honor of God. However, if you're invited to someone's home and they tell you, hey, come and eat with me, I just sacrificed this meat to my false god, then don't partake. 
not for your conscience' sake, but for their sake, so that they do not think that you are honoring their God along and being pluralistic in your attitudes and your, the way that you live your life for Messiah. I've known a number of people who, over the years, have come to faith in Christ after being deeply steeped in other forms of religion, in particular, I can think of a couple of people who came out of witchcraft and sorcery, uh, uh, and, and when they became Christians, that some things that are Christian practices in terms of prayer and waiting on the Spirit of God, listening to the Lord, that it was very hard for them to enter into those things because they said it just felt too similar because spiritual power is spiritual. Where do you think the source of all power comes from? And so in that process, they were like wrestling with that. And so it's not hard for me to imagine Greek Christians who've come out of this other form of worship and they're looking at some of these things and they see their Christian friends buying meat in the market and they know more about that market than their Christian friend does. Well, I know that guy. I used to go to temple with him and he would bring animals in and slaughter them in the name of that God. The name of Artemis or the name of, you know, you name it. And, and so they had this, they knew in their, in their heart of hearts some things about it and they just felt very, very uncomfortable. They had a good reason for being so sensitive. Then we had the majority of the congregation, both Jew and Greek, who viewed both days and food as their freedom. They viewed God as all-powerful, and they were not afraid of demons. They were not afraid of false gods or anything else. But here was their problem. They lacked compassion for their fellow believers whom it did bother. And they became rather outspoken. In fact, that's why Paul starts the chapter with about not quarreling about it. Actually, there's two words there that we translate as one word, quarrel, but it's actually the concept is do not get into heated debates about disputable matters. Here's what was happening is these other people were coming and going and saying, oh, you know, I just don't think we should do that. I don't think that we should do that. And these guys, instead of going, you know, well, I, you know, I, I want to be sensitive. I want to be kind or whatever. They were like, that's stupid. Man, you know, boy, you don't have any faith. You this, you that, you know, and blah, 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 blah. And they were just reading these people, the riot act, you know, just, just that this is the way it should be. And then some of these people, after getting beat up by that opinion, would then go ahead and do things that violated their conscience. You know, actually, this is one of the things sometimes in, in relationships between husbands and wives even that I've noticed over the years in ministry is that sometimes one spouse is very comfortable with certain things and the other spouse isn't. And the one who is comfortable begins to press the one who isn't comfortable until they violate their own conscience to make the other spouse happy. And the end result is it's very destructive to the marriage. It can be over food and drink. Could be over what's permissible in the bedroom. And when one has the freedom and the other doesn't, and the one who has the freedom presses the other person to conform, is that love? Is that laying down your life for the other person? Just a thought. In this text, the Apostle Paul identifies himself as being among the strong. So even as he's kind of rebuking the strong more than he's correcting the weak, Paul identifies himself as being among the strong who could partake in both without concern. But he rebukes those who are strong because of their lack of compassion, His la their lack of care, their willingness to to have heated debates. In other words, it's not just a discussion. It's not just like sharing a matter of opinion and going, 
but hey, you be free to do what you sense because it's a disputable matter, because it's a matter of opinion, you do your conscience because that is what I want you to do. I want you to do what is right before the Lord. I want you to listen to God for yourself. I want you to read the scriptures for yourself and you make good conclusions based on what the scriptures say, based on your comfort together with those things. And I I want you to be faithful to God above all else. That is a loving discussion. A heated debate is when you say, are you kidding me? That's so stupid. Not that anybody here has ever said anything like that. Not even, you know, like me even. I, you know, I mean, maybe other pastors have said things like that, but... In response to the problem, Paul spends the majority of chapter 15 and the first part of chapter 15 focused on the importance of being compassionate and refusing to belittle those who are weak. Now, I would say, interesting enough, we kind of have the opposite problem in the, in the Bible Belt Church today. We, over similar issues, I have heard these passages used, you know, kind of weaponized, really, about things like food, drink, festivals, demanding that people give up their freedom so as not to cause others to stumble. And not once, as I, as I said before, has anyone who wanted others to give up their freedom claimed to be weak or in danger of losing their faith in Messiah over it. Every time the claim was to be wiser and more mature. Here's what I want to say. Regardless of how you feel about the topic, when it's a disputable matter, Paul admonishes them to be gentle. Paul did not admonish them to give up their freedom. He said, don't do it in a way that hurts the other person. In other words, if it's your freedom to eat and drink, do not then invite somebody over to participate in food and drink. That would be a problem for them. If it is about a festival and you think it's good to keep it and somebody else thinks it's not good to keep it or you want to go to the festival and engage with the community around you, uh, he says, fine, but don't drag the other person. Don't ask the other person to go into it. But he doesn't tell them that you have to get rid of your freedom. He said you need to have a heart of compassion for the other person. That's what brings me back to this whole thing of the gospel of sin management I think sometimes unintentionally that's what we end up doing is we put on a show for people to see and then we're not authentic. And that's not helpful either because then we create an impression that we are for things and believe in things that we do not. And so walking that out becomes this kind of difficult tension that can only be solved by being kind, compassionate, and caring about the other person. Where then we don't pretend to be something that we're not, pretend to hold ideas and things that we do not, but that we don't rub the other person's face in it either. If it's your freedom to eat and drink, then let it be your freedom to eat and drink. If in the process of purchasing that food and drink, that you should come across the person whose faith is weak? Please, don't get up and pretend like it didn't happen. That propagates that kind of religiosity that the world calls hypocrisy. I would say at the same time, I would not say, well, hey, I know you don't really like this kind of stuff, but why don't you sit down and have a beer with me anyhow? That would be rude. But don't pretend, right? Don't pretend. And the person who, that you come upon when you see them participating in things that you just don't feel comfortable with, don't feel the need to go over and make some snotty comment 
about their freedom. Hello? Like, if you don't like it, then when you finish paying for your meal, leave. But you don't have to go over and tell them how they're ruining their witness. Because I'll be honest, at that moment, what's ruining your witness is sitting in judgment of a brother instead of loving one another, right? This is how they will know that you are my disciples in that you judge one another, talk bad about one another behind your backs, go up and confront them in a restaurant. Oh no, those aren't in the text, are they? Loving somebody in the middle of a disputable matter. Loving them, not making it an issue of fellowship. See, real maturity, as we look there at 15.1, he says, is outdoing one another and showing compassion for those whose faith is weak. Demanding that you do not quarrel over opinions. Paul identified real maturity not as the ability to agree on everything, uniformity, but rather the ability to disagree over those matters of opinion and still be kind, accepting one another, since it is a matter of opinion and not specifically Scripture. So then 14.13 says, do not pass judgment. If you are mature, as you claim, then you will not look down on those whom you disagree with. Think about some modern-day examples. Some believe that we should keep all the feasts of the Old Testament. My family and I have enjoyed celebrating a number of the feasts on occasion. I don't think I'm more spiritual for doing it. I don't think you're less spiritual if you've never done it. I've had a great deal. I've learned a great deal from those things, enjoyed my time of fellowship with Messianic Christians and things like that but I do not think myself more spiritual for doing that on occasion or whenever I don't think myself more spiritual for not keeping those things. Likewise, people get in a fuss in the modern church over, quote-unquote, the Christian holidays that were once pagan holidays, turning winter solstice into Christmas, making the Day of the Dead into All Hallows' Eve, spring solstice into Easter, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on these things, but you really have, you know, you're really building an argument on something that the person who you're disagreeing with probably has no idea what you're talking about. If you do and it bothers you, then don't celebrate them. I will be clear, only for the sake of, of teaching, but not... In the, for the sake of persuasion. I have no issue with any day, as long as it's under the Lord, just as Paul said. Now, as a church leadership, we've chosen to celebrate Christmas and Easter. We have stayed neutral on the other days in the calendar uh, about that because, of, uh, you know, for, because we do know that they are in greater dispute. But Christmas and Easter have a long history in the church, going back all the way to the first century. So really the arguments about those things having been one-time pagan holidays, just remember, there were no holidays celebrating the birth of Christ or the resurrection until they made them. So it's really just, it's really a matter of opinion. Food and drink. In the early church, this was tied to the issues of things being sacrificed to pagan gods or or keeping the kosher diet. Today, there's been numerous things that have been added to the list. It was not until Dr. Benjamin Rush, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, wrote a track in 1790 on the medical impact of alcohol that the church ever suggested that abstinence rather than self-control was more spiritual than the other. That's a fact of history. In fact, when the Puritans landed, do you know what the first thing they did was? They started brewing, even before they built houses. The Puritans. You know when people call you puritanical? 
They're wrong. <laughs> they were known for their cider and their beer brewing. I'm not suggesting that you need to do either. In fact, I would say if you're in Celebrate Recovery, like it would be probably a really big mistake. But the truth is, from a biblical standpoint, when it comes to both food and drink, the admonition is eat and drink without raising issues of conscience, receive everything as from God, and never overindulge in anything. I think we got a bigger problem with the overindulgence. Hello? I mean, I, you know, I celebrate Thanksgiving too. Hello? On the other hand, if it served in the name of another God, they were advised not to partake for the explicit reason of not honoring a false God. The concern was not the food. The concern was that we would never give worship to anyone but the true God. And in the case of eating food that could have been possibly offered to a false god, if it was a stumbling block to you because you then should knew about it and you didn't want to eat or drink uh, because you thought it was sinful in your conscience, then do not violate your conscience. Because for you, that's sin. Here's the thing. Over the years, I've held opinions at both ends of the spectrum on everything from holidays to food and drink. And my poor kids had to go on that ride. Today, I do not have any issues with food, drink, or holidays. But I want to stress, I am not saying that to push you in any direction. You do the research. You do what is right before the Lord. And I will honor both you and the Lord. I am not telling you this because I want to argue with you about your opinions. Likewise, I don't want you to argue with me about mine. I am tired of defending stuff like that. It is foolish to argue about stuff like that. Paul is clear. Let's not argue about disputable matters. I didn't come by my opinions lightly or uninformed. The information that you're going to share with me is not going to be something new. It's not because somebody didn't inform me about what you saw on YouTube. I respect your opinion. And I don't feel any need to change your opinion. That's why I tend to keep these things to myself. So that no one feels put upon to share my opinion as the pastor. But for that same reason, I ask you... To do the same. Do not demand your own way. Paul made it clear, 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love does not demand its own way. You can have your own way. I encourage you, follow the Lord with all of your heart. You do what you believe is right before the Lord on those disputable matters. Now, when it comes to Scripture, no dispute. When it comes to Scripture, we stick with the Word of God. But whenever it comes to disputable matters, here's the thing, and let's be honest with ourselves. Our faith, your faith and mine, is very personal, isn't it? And the opinions that you and I hold on those disputable matters actually do matter to us. I hold my opinions on those things for good reasons. They are meaningful to me. They are convictions that I hold about the things that I don't have book, chapter, and verse for. They have meaning and purpose in my life to help keep me on the narrow path. And I love what my sister Carol Benefield said the other day. We were in class, and I, I thought this was so insightful. So I'm going to quote. I, I, it's not a direct quote, but I, I think she expressed it so succinctly. She said that the essence you know, of growing up in the Catholic Church and them telling her not to do some things served as guardrails for her life which kept her from serious, potentially damaging sin. And her attitude was, thank God I had those guardrails even though I learned freedom in the Holy Spirit as I grew and matured in the Lord. But those rules saved me from self-destructive behavior. I love that. 
I did the same thing. I hope that you do those things, that you put up guardrails in the places where you know you're weak. They might be guardrails over television. They might be guardrails over uh, video games. They might be guardrails, all those things. Nothing said in the scripture about any of those things. But maybe in the process of guarding your heart and mind, you don't participate in certain things because you know what they do to you, where they lead you. And so you put up guardrails and maybe in the process of counseling someone who's talking about struggling with the same things, you can say, well, not the Lord says, but I say, just like what Paul would say, not, not, not the Lord, but me, I, I would tell you that this has been helpful to me. And it might be helpful to them. Just don't demand it of them. And if they don't like your advice and don't follow it, don't sit in judgment of them. Some of those guardrails that I had early on, I was telling some friends just the other night, you know, when I first came to Christ, I took my entire album collection and I destroyed every album. Some of them collector's albums and things like that. I don't know what was particularly all that evil about the Beach Boys, but can I just say, all right, every album, man. And some of them were collector's items that I can't afford to replace today. They were like, you know, 10 bucks then and they're like hundreds of dollars now. And I'm like... Ugh, you know, I wish I hadn't destroyed that one just because it's, yeah, I like the artwork and, and whatever. And, but I don't think today that my listening to the Beach Boys is going to set me on the highway to hell. <laughs> or even a little ACDC. If it had hold of my heart, that would be another story. But I can remember some things, some of the good things about my youth. They were there. And if you can't listen to those things, please don't. I promise not to get my album collection out when you come over. I went and I pulled everything off shelves that I thought was might possibly be, have a hook in my heart and I poured it out and drained it and dumped it and flushed it and all of those things. Things that just do not have a hold on my heart anymore. But those are not the guardrails I need in my life now. What I need are different guardrails altogether. I found out some things about myself along the way. Like how much I like food. That's why I, like, I regularly fast. It's not about trying to keep the weight off, church. It's about me getting control of... Because I like food. Hello? Yeah, I got a witness. You know? Regardless of where you fall in the continuum about these things, remember they are opinions and we need to love one another and your opinion is not the Bible. Parents, we're coming up on the holiday season. If you would like to meet one-on-one -on -one and talk about our journey, Dawn and I's journey as parents, and as we walk through those things, topics like trick-or-treat, Santa Claus, etc., I will be glad to share you with you my experience, but I bless you as a parent to do what you think is best. I have confidence in you, and I do not judge you based on my experience or opinion. Because one of the things I know is that with five kids, I had five different experiences. And some of them reacted really positively to those things, and some of them really didn't. Some of them are struggling with their walk with the Lord today because of those things that I restricted out of a matter of opinion. So they thought Christianity was all about legalism and rules, while others of my kids thought it was helpful. Hmm. As you interact with the world around you, you will discover that each and every one of us have a different response to liberty. And we ought to love one another in that liberty. Do not use it as a guise for evil, 
Do not use it as license to do sin. But be free. So if you've ever been crushed by the weight of opinion, specifically if you've ever been crushed by legalism in the church and it still weighs on you like PTSD of some sort, I want to invite you, would you, would you stand today? And on the other end of the spectrum, if another person's liberty has led you into sin, let me invite you to stand also. So if that's either end of the spectrum, whether someone else's legalism crushed you emotionally, spiritually, or whether another person's liberty crushed you spiritually and has wounded you, let me invite you just to stand right now. I ask some people to gather around my brother over there. And... Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the clarity of your word and the gift that your word is to us to lead us in the way of righteousness to lead us to all truth. You promised us that your spirit would be with us and lead us and guide us to all truth. We're grateful that we have the, the, the witness in the word and we rest in the, 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 the promise that your word is true and right and gives life. But Lord, we also recognize that there are moments in time when beyond the, beyond the Scripture, there are struggles in life, there are moments in life where we are not sure what to do, and we cry out to you with the confidence that you will lead us and guide us, that you are for us. And so, Father, we pray that when we find ourselves in those matter, in those moments, that we would trust you to lead us without feeling the need to impose anything on anyone else that the Scripture does not impose. That we would not make arguments from silence, that we would not make arguments uh, from uh, putting passages together in such a way that we uh, create burdens and weights around people's necks that uh, weigh them down, who, that destroy persons, uh, nor would we uh, invite them to do things that are destructive to them. But Lord, instead that we would love our brothers and sisters and believe in their ability to hear from you. We pray that you would give them strength. And I, I pray for those, whether they have been uh, uh, weighed down by someone else's legalism or they have had their conscience violated by somebody's liberty, that you would bring healing to them spiritually, emotionally, that you would heal the whole person. I pray even, Father, where the effects have had far-reaching uh, implications for them physically, Lord, that you would bring healing to their bodies, renewal within, and strengthen them. And I pray, Father, that we as the body of Christ would not only stand around them and with them, but, Lord, that we would commit ourselves to walking in a way that we represent you through loving one another within the body of Christ, not demanding our own way, but loving our brothers and sisters, that we would always stand with the truth, that we would always stand in a place of good conscience, but that we would never put burdens and loads on people that are not explicitly given in your word.
Teach us to truly love one another now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As prayer team members, you go ahead and come on up. Let's stand together. If you have any other needs this morning in terms of prayer or anything, let me invite you to come on up and get some prayer uh, with the prayer team members. Uh, Otherwise, let me encourage you to fellowship out in the lobby. Make sure and leave this area for prayer. And of course, if you've got kids in Kids Church, we've run over and I'm sure they would like for you to come get your kids. So, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our time together. Bless us as we go now out into the world to be your hands and feet. May the love of the Lord Jesus be made manifest in our hearts and in our lives in the way we treat one another and the world around us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.